This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is June 30th, 2022, and this is episode 296. I'm Scott Lundbaum. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, we're going to do a short roundup of everything that isn't the BCNDP leadership race, because we talked about that on our emergency podcast on Tuesday, a couple nights ago, and we're tired and nothing's happened in the uh, race since. But before we get into that, happy Canada Day, everyone. The show will be coming out tomorrow on Canada Day, and I hope everyone enjoys the long weekend. I'm so excited for the fireworks that are happening in the Coquitlam right next to me, like under a kilometer away, to be waking up my toddler and baby at 10 p.m. And meanwhile, I'm disappointed the uh, we aren't getting any fireworks here at Vancouver. Maybe year. if Mark Marison wins, you'll get your fireworks, Scott. Oh, I can hope. <laughs> Let's jump into our potpourri episode. Let's start with a different leadership race, the conservative leadership race. We have a little bit of news. The party has announced there are oh over 675,000 people eligible to vote in the race, making it the easily largest ever political party leadership race in Canadian history. Yeah, this is coming what, about a month or so after the membership cutoff happened. The party said they had, I think it was over 600,000 is what they said at the time. Nobody knew if that, how many duplicates there were, what the, uh, the various parties or what the various campaigns, how accurate their claims of sales were, etc. This number here has been scrubbed of any duplicates or any membership sales the party found to have violated the their requirements on that. So this... This means that, by and large, most of the campaigns were probably roughly right on where they they said their numbers were, because it generally adds up to around this amount. And it's particularly interesting because, yeah, like you said, it is just such a big number compared to where leadership races usually are. CTV points out the largest previous race that they found was in 2004 when the newly formed Conservative Party of Canada had 282,000 memberships, so well over double that. Ballot packages have to be mailed out. They have to sub- People have to follow the paperwork in there and submit them, which is, like, bureaucratically, I hate thinking about that, and I can't even imagine how much that's going to cost the party. That's oh, it's, the it's price of democracy. Well, remember uh, last time, they didn't even get to uh, announce... Aaron O'Toole until like late in the morning just they had problems with counting everything and some of the ballots there, there were some issues handling that and that was a significantly smaller number than this now there will be some uh, attrition between the membership sales and the people who actually vote but like, that is just a lot of ballots to handle and how they've done it in the past is you have to photocopy your I- an ID and send it in with the the ballot to to verify that you who you are who you say you are and whatnot. So like someone has to manually review all of those when they come in. 
and then feed the ballot into the ballot counting machines, which I think was where the problem was last time on the, the ballot got ripped in the machines or something. Anyway, the point is, someone is going to have to check 600,000 pieces of ID in a fairly short period of time to have that all work, which is going to be fun to have to manage that logistical challenge. Even more fun is what each of the campaigns gets to do now. They're, in theory, receiving this membership list today. They have until Monday to, over the long weekend, to contest any names on there they think are invalid or shouldn't be on there. Maybe they find a duplicate. Maybe they find Pierre Poutine or some other obvious fake ones. Or maybe he does exist. We'll never know. But I just can't even imagine what you do other than go, I know that I had some, if you had people sign up illegitimately, like plants, maybe that would be your way, but that raises all kinds of, I can't imagine how you do anything with this list in three days. Honestly, you'd probably have to have a list of people you you suspected of buying memberships in a questionable manner, and that's... And in practice, how many people will that actually be that a campaign will know about and be able to act on? So I honestly can't see them putting that before just because it is such a short time frame on that. The other thing, other question, the other question this raises is because this seems to verify that Patrick Brown and Pierre Polyev were telling the truth roughly in their claims of 150,000 and 300,000 memberships sold respectively it raises the question of whether brown is going to continue in the race he was musing earlier this week that he hasn't ruled out running for re-election as mayor of brampton which would be just like throwing in the towel for the safe comfort of the mayor's chair of a mid-sized city He has until August 19th to file that paperwork, so he doesn't need to decide that by Monday, but the fact he's still publicly musing about dropping out is quite prominent and gotta be be lifting up his supporters. I think he says if he doesn't win on that, I don't think there's any rule that says he can't both be a candidate for mayor of Brampton and leader of the Conservative Party. There's no rule that a dog can't run for leader of the Conservative Party. Russia would pass the green light interview. It's the airbud. Yeah, I did get the reference. Yeah, it's more politically awkward than anything. But I have trouble seeing how these numbers mean anything but a Pierre Polyev win, so having a plan B definitely seems prudent, whether it's just Going back to retirement, Sheree, or is he interested in retire? He's definitely old enough to be retired. But yeah, exit in stage left to retirement, as Sheree would do, or continuing the Brampton politics as Brown would, or it does seem like the case where the prudent thing would be to plan for Pierre Polyev win. So if Polyev has sold 300 to 311,000 memberships and there's 675 total, it's it's not like a slam dunk for Polyev. It's pretty close, but there's still like an opportunity that some of those could switch their bat votes or not turn up. Like those aren't necessarily locked in for him. They could go another way. There's still a narrow path, I think, for an anyone but Polyev candidate to come forward. 
And maybe that's Patrick Brown. Maybe that's Jean Charest. It's too early like, to tell. Yeah, at this point, there isn't any real point in dropping out formally. You might as well just keep going forward. And yeah, hope the uh, you can squeeze out that uh, 1 in 20 odds of victory on this one. There's no real downside. For Roman Babber and maybe even Scott Aitchinson, dropping out now and endorsing someone else could endear you in a way that could lead to a future cabinet role. But yeah, for the top, the main front runners. The only other thing I'll note on this is that this big a number of leadership signups does or ought to, I think, worry the Liberal Party. There's clearly enthusiasm here that there hasn't been in the last several Conservative Party leadership races. And even then, both of those last two leaders took a chunk out of Trudeau. Yes, Trudeau won, but he lost the popular vote in the last two elections, and a lot of the seats he had held or held by the narrowest of margins if there is someone that is generating more enthusiasm than andrew Shear or aaron o'toole neither which scored super highly on the political charisma meter that ought to be a real concern because that it's not a for sure thing that this is going to translate into people coming out to the polls whenever the next election is. But it's a sure sign that there is energy in the opposition party that there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of in the governing party at the moment. And this, I think, is probably another data point, a single data point, but nevertheless another point in the Liberals are probably in trouble in the next election. If I'm Team Trudeau, the things that I'm watching for is trying to figure out where these members live. Are they all just in Alberta and Saskatchewan? Are they in tr true blue conservative ridings that are just like mad, but they're not going to vote liberal anyway? Or are they more evenly dispersed across the country? And second, are they people who are always voting conservative and or people's party? Or is it a broader reach than that? Because if all of these people are just people who voted conservative in the last two elections. They may just be frustrated and angry, but they, it may not actually translate into anything. But if you're the liberals, it's really too easy to delude yourself into thinking everything is fine. You just have to play the scary conservative card again, and no one will pay attention to the pilot mounting scandals, which we'll talk about in a bit. Yeah, I would be very worried or... Yeah, very worried about running that line of thinking. Like we we saw Pierre Polyev hold some pretty large rallies in major cities that are not traditional conservative territory. And the other thing is, like, the rank and file hate Trudeau. Like, there there is no love for Trudeau among a lot of the people in in the conservative world. If that alone was the motivating factor, we would have seen that show up in the 2020 leadership race. That, that there is something else going on here beyond just that. And yeah, may, maybe Pierre Polyev is so off-putting that he basically concedes the election before it gets started. But that is a 
big risk, particularly because there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of real understanding by a lot of liberals on and a lot of kind of the commentariat that are broadly aligned with the liberals that really understand the phenomenon that's happening there, which means they're probably going to misread it in a bad way. Let's jump over to the other national leadership campaign that is officially kicked off now that everyone has forgotten about and everyone totally missed earlier this week, or at least in our circles did. And that's that the federal Green Party has announced their official launch of their 2022 race. It's open for applications. They have a leader's job description posted and a contract will be available July 1st. And the rules have already generated a bunch of controversy. So first off, the main number, the main details are we're in a pre-campaign period until August 5th, and all leadership candidates will be announced on August 31st. Starting then, people will start being able to mail in their ballots for the first round of voting that will close and the results will be declared on October 14th. Then there'll be a second round of voting kicking off right away that will go until November 19th when we'll learn who the new leader of the Green Party of Canada is. The idea of the two-round voting being to winnow out the cranks in round one, which there might be a few because the entry fee is $1,000. I believe the Conservative Party one was like $300,000. (laughs) <laughs> something around that order of magnitude yeah so that is the lowest leadership contest fee i've ever seen so the real controversial thing but i guess if you don't have money i was gonna say i guess if you don't have many takers because it certainly doesn't seem like there's been a huge amount of interest in people putting their name forward so far on this might as well make it easy but of course that runs into the other thing and the controversial aspect of this which is they're putting in some requirements for yeah run. they have said that whoever wins must be fully bilingual and by this they have referred and i couldn't find it in there quickly in their exact descriptions but cbc says you must have proficiency in english and french at an advanced level or what's known as a b2 level according to the european common framework of reference for languages But if you're Indigenous, you're exempt from it. So it's not a fully racist policy, except for people who are pointing out. Yeah, exactly. Any new Canadians? It has also been pointed out by Green Party of Saskatchewan leader Naomi Hunter, who's considering a bid, that this would have disqualified Elizabeth May, who wasn't very good at speaking French when she ran for leader back in time long ago when elizabeth may first entered no one can remember (laughs) it has been a long time for sure yeah and that's yeah this is different than how parties normally do not being able to speak french that's a challenge for the conservative party and not every conservative leader has had a particularly good grasp of la ligne francaise or i probably butchered that but it's not something that all parties necessarily have leadership races where they most of the candidates come to the table with great levels of French proficiency. The general expectation is that 
if they win, they will put in the work and improve their French. And I'm not going to pretend I have a great insight into the the mind of Quebecers, but the general gist I get is that some level of French proficiency is definitely needed to be viable in Quebec. But if you can put together a decent bit of French and have shown that you respect the language and the culture put in the work, though, they will overlook some of the weaker parts of, the, of someone's language proficiency. Especially for the Green Party. <laughs> and even the NDP. Yeah, but who aren't winning seats in Quebec like anyway. Green Quebec leader Alex Terrell, who is bilingual, said this is a ridiculous requirement. I guess it's also not a finalized requirement. They're still asking members to submit their feedback, but it's quite the bar to introduce when so far no one has put their name forward wanting the job. But then again, with a $1,000 entry fee, like as long as you two languages, why not try to be Green Party leader of Canada? Well, those two specific languages, which I get through the official language, but Let's be real here. The most likely pickups for the Dream Party are on southern Vancouver Island. And in that case, you're better off probably picking up whatever the second and most third commonly spoken language in on southern Vancouver Island is, which is not French. But uh, yeah, I think this is a case where the Dream Party's maybe not thought through their requirements to the, uh, the fullest extent to which they maybe should have. Speaking of requirements, we have a requirement in this country that regions and provinces are represented in the Senate, and apparently successive prime ministers now don't care. Yeah, so CBC had a story out yesterday that nearly 20% of the Red Chamber seats are empty. People may remember that in the final years of the Harper government, he just stopped appointing people to the Senate, and in a way that very much seems to echo that. Trudeau has done the same. It's been over a year since he's made an appointment to the Senate. Only one province has its full is it complement of senators, which I don't think it is Quebec, because of course it's Quebec. It's one of those things that no one is ever really mad at, but it's also not great. I remember there was a f- decent amount of stories about Harper not doing it, but I think at that point it People were starting to speculate about what would happen if this carried on for another year or two and the Senate might not be able to reach quorum if it continued. We're not quite here yet, but wasn't one of Trudeau's big things when he came in was to change up the way senators were appointed and have a Well, and that exists. That's how many have been appointed. It was chaired by former Prime Minister Kim Campbell. And it seemed like it was successful, but I don't know why it's so stalled and they don't really yeah did it grind to a halt or that's what i was gonna ask. i don't know this made sense at, like, at least with harper there was a senate scandal and he just didn't want to have his name beside senate in any media and whatnot and just tried to pretend the whole thing wasn't there so he didn't have to deal with it but what is trudeau's reason there has not been a his big senate reasonings issue. i don't know but i could speculate are that one he doesn't like governing. He likes being the government, but by all intent, by all measures that we've seen, he doesn't seem to actually enjoy the duties of the job, like 
passing legislation or appointing competent governor general. Although the, Mary Simon seems to be not embarrassing the role like Julie Payette did. Yeah, he likes making announcements about appointing governors general on those. The actual work of vetting them is not always being up to snuff. And you would think, hey, it's a thing where two Joe can go in front of a camera and talk about how great something he's doing, namely appointing this person is. And you would think he'd like that, considering that seems to be the main thing he's, his government likes to do, is announce stuff rather than do stuff. Yeah. And like the other thing I could see is that the Senate it has been a little bit of a thorn for Trudeau at times. The thing is about with appointing senators as independents and not having any formal caucus there is they start to act a little more independently. And so right now you have a Senate that has 25 members that were appointed by Harper, some of whom are no longer with the Conservative caucus, whether they were kicked out or decided to leave and join the Canadian Senate group or one of the other independent groups. And the rest, most, actually the majority were appointed by Trudeau with another nine appointed by Kretchen and Martin, respectively, and then these vacancies. The chamber is overwhelmingly independent-minded. They have pushed back on a number of key bills. There are some bills Trudeau has talked about as priorities for this term, like C-11, like we talked about last week, some of the online harm stuff, firearm stuff. All of these are quite controversial and could benefit from very independent oversight that pushes back where there is valid, reasonable concerns from civil society. A chamber of sober second thought, if you will. It was actually working pretty well in some cases. Like There were a number of studies where they came back with amendments and then the government went, no thank you. And like the Maid Bill, for example, was a very controversial one where the Senate kicked it back and then had to decide whether to roll over and accept the government's position or to really fight it. And I think most senators went down with the we'll fight you once position. But that's got to be annoying if you're a prime minister who already is inclined to not govern. All of this just makes me more annoyed by federal court justice James O'Reilly, because in 2014, there was a Vancouver lawyer, Anise Alani, who launched a charter challenge to Harper's refusal to fill the Senate saying, this is unconstitutional, he has an obligation to fill it, he can't essentially atrophy the Senate to death because that would violate the reference questions that were put to the Is that actually a charter issue? or A constitutional like a issue, sorry. One? He argued that the Constitution mandates that there be a Senate, and so this, there needs to be people filled. The case took a little while to be heard by the time it was heard and dealt with. Trudeau had been elected and started appointing people, so the judge threw it out going, the moratorium is over, there's no live controversy, the case is moot. There's no need to spend time thinking about this now. It may be, an answer may not be needed for several years, if ever, said the justice. It, True. Well, it has been several years. I guess we need another court case. Mr. Alani, sue Trudeau now, please. <laughs> and emphasize this is the second time you've had to go to court to get it filled. The Senate is a mess. It should be taken seriously if we're going to have it at all. I think we're going to have it, so yeah, might as well do it properly. That's a whole 
constitutional amendment can of worms that nobody wants to crack open. But speaking of how much the government likes to announce things, the famed superclusters are no more, and they have been rebranded to global innovation clusters, because why the hell not? Did any superclusters get off the ground? I think there was some stuff that had happened, but like it's been more smoke than fire as far as a policy goes. And I guess the the government decided that the clusters were no longer super, so needed to change that. Minister of Science, Industry, and Innovation, Francois-Philippe Champagne, said of the name change, there's a marketing aspect and a message you are sending. It's global talent innovation happening in Canada. That was my frame of reference when I said we need to change that. And it's, yeah. Cool. No one cares. <laughs> it's not good. Yeah, I, I mostly just throw this in because it's poked fun at the liberals for uh, doing like the most liberal thing ever on this with the name change. Yeah, maybe, maybe there's still a chance that some of this could come out, but yeah. I don't know, Ottawa's a silly place. What's not silly is the government's interference with people in the justice system they should not be interfering with. As we mentioned last week, there's a, it seems like a brewing scandal with whether or not the federal government decided to direct the RCMP to release the names of the weapons used in the Porta Peak massacre faster so that they could hurry gun legislation along. And now we have some more documents bolstering that story. Yeah, in this case, a second person who was sitting in at the meeting... Lee Scanlon, who was the former director of strategic communications for the RCMP in Halifax. The Globe Mail story isn't super clear on this, but I gather from some other media that she was not a sworn officer, but a civilian employee of the RCMP on there, and therefore slightly less in the chain of command on that. Yeah, she sat in on the meeting and wrote to the commissioner a pretty scathing email following that. So yeah, the this is now the second document to turn up in relation to that meeting and does collaborate the the notes ooh, superintendent campbell made on that following that meeting and it's not good nope. so yeah there's no doubt more to come of this i think as mentioned we may might have mentioned this last time i can't recall but the the original note that stirred this all up from the former RCMP superintendent, that had gotten held back from the commission for months. So there's also the question of, was the government trying to bury this or not? Because it would embarrass them. And it is all messy and substantiated gross. It's the most like Canadian Liberal Party scandal that an inquiry into the utter collapse incompetence and failures of the RCMP is bad news for the federal government. Like, in very corrupt yeah, well, ways, too. Not the first time the... Yeah, not the first time the uh, this liberal government has interfered in a criminal case for political gains. At this point, between this and SNC-Lavalin, there's starting to be a pattern here, which is never great when your scandals start to develop a rhyming pattern of their own. Speaking of scandals and growing details, the Public Order Emergency Commission has 
gotten a deal with the government to review cabinet documents that informed the decisions made during the invocation of the Emergencies Act during the Freedom Convoy protests, which I'm realizing that as you're listening to this, there may be something happening in Ottawa or maybe nothing. There's already been some... I've seen on Twitter earlier that the Ottawa police have already made a couple of... Oh, and Tamara Litch was arrested for violating her bail in Alberta earlier this week as well. But there's lots of other clowns who might do something. But we're still trying to figure out what happened back in February and the fact the committee is going to get to review some of the cabinet decisions and cabinet documents is going to be quite interesting to find out what we can learn from that. Yeah, governments tend to hold on to cabinet documents pretty tightly, and there are good reasons for that. Like You, you want to be able to deliberate and have the honest conversations and honest advice without it necessarily without fear of it necessarily becoming a matter to be litigated in public, you, you want people not to couch themselves when they're advising the country's leaders because they feared the bad press that w- would follow if those notes became public. So we, it's noteworthy here. We, I'm not sure we're going to come out of it. We'll just have to wait and see. I will say this, the more time that has passed since the Emergencies Act, the more skeptical I've become that it was necessary to invoke it, and I hope the commission that's looking at this gives it Yeah, I was going to say, neither of us were really that big of endorsers of it in the first place. Endorser even less now, in retrospect. Yeah. Speaking of things that were learning indirectly, the Ottawa citizens, David Puglesi, has a report out where he's reporting on what the New York Times uncovered, which is that a lot of different NATO forces, including Americans and notably Canadians for us, are actually on the ground in Ukraine, continuing operations, not necessarily fighting on the front lines by any stretch, but continuing training operations, it sounds like, even as the act of war goes on. And I think the big story here is that it was unclear who is involved in the situation in Ukraine. We know we've sent military and financial aid to Ukraine, and we had been doing training beforehand, but that that has continued while Russia has been invading the country is not something that has been part of the public debate. And it's quite notable that it takes, I think, the New York Times to disclose this to Canadians and not have the Minister of National Defense actually comment on it. She actually refused to comment on the story. Which is pretty typical for uh, Canada. When it's it comes pretty to typical for this government when it comes to literally forces. anything to just say, eh, we're not going to give a good answer. Yeah. Also, it's not like the Amer- not like the Americans like to say too much about a lot of their special forces. After- Unfortunately, I got paywalled out of the New York Times story, so I've been able to to dig into it in full detail. I will say this, like the point of special forces is to do stuff quietly without necessarily attracting the attention that deploying, say, a task force from one of the Red Force regiments to do a training op would entail. The reality of modern geopolitical conflict is some of the stuff happens quietly and some of the stuff happens in the open and it's 
important to be as a country to be able to operate in both spheres. And yeah, that sometimes means the stuff isn't always as public as it uh, as some people might want to be, but sometimes an operational necessity too. I will also point out that having troops in Ukraine training Ukrainians while Ukraine is being invaded basically describes the situation from 2014 onward. The only difference here is that the Russians doing the invasion or have Russian flags on their uniforms rather than having taken them off as happened in the conflict prior to the Well, and, the, and their February. tanks marched right on Kiev. So in that respect, it's not... Yeah. But like, <laughs> Ukraine has been fighting off a Russian invasion for at this point eight years, and we've had trainers in country for most of that period of time, and the benefit of doing it with the special forces who beyond the kind of door kicking raids the action oriented stuff that people immediately think of when they hear special forces a lot of what they do is stuff like this where they train other militaries overseas we've had training missions from run out of can softcom to other countries around the world it is part of their mission to to perform those operations and in this case, the benefit is you can do that without having or without giving the Russians a propaganda win of, see, look at all these NATO troops in Ukraine. Though we do live in a democracy, theoretically, and in theory, at least Parliament should have some oversight of decisions being made. And that's where things get yeah, a bit and messy, especially in the refusal Canada. to comment. If it's been public, I can accept a shitty answer more than just, oh, we're not even going to talk about what we're doing. It's like, if it's indefensible, you Oh, I can get the, we, our policies, we don't say anything about what special forces is doing as just a general thing policy. But yeah, you're right that parliament should definitely have a role in this. And this is where the US definitely does things better than we do with this. They have a very large special operations forces within their military and do a lot of stuff secretly, but they have a fairly robust congressional oversight system and in canada that's our parliamentary oversight for a lot of this stuff is not as robust as the americans are and that's that is where i think we could stand to improve this and yeah those briefings and parliamentary deliberations are probably not the sort of thing that can or should be made public but it is important that all the that parliamentarians be there be providing oversight and that it not just be government. Well, while we're talking about David Puglesi, I thought I'd bring up as well his other story. Like, Puglesi is one of the top defense reporters in the country, and his stories are always worth reading. His other story was this leaked uh, directive that was passed down through the public service saying the military might look at cutting capabilities using and using public servants to handle more jobs and doing a bit more outsourcing as it attempts to manage tight resources within the forces. Uh, if you go through the story, it notes, it doesn't give any specifics of what's effectively being cut, but it talks about the challenges they've had with procurement, which relates to the other story we have here around shipbuilding delays, and we're not actually going to have our su supply ships ready in time, which means we're relying on civilian navies once again. 
Well, yeah, allies and converted civilian ships. Which ne- neither are great things to have to rely on. Yeah. We should have our own supply ships. Logistics is very important to a f- functioning military and be able to actually send our ships further than just a little ways off our shore. And buried in this directive as well is one of the big challenges they're facing is housing. Just like every other sector of Canadian society, there's a shortage of housing units between four and 6,000 units on military bases. And so they're having trouble retaining skilled military staff, keeping quality of life up. And so they're challenges with recruitment, challenges with attrition, just challenges across the board, and therefore they need to do things more efficiently and cut costs to maintain. Yeah, it's a little unclear exactly what's being looked at here, and I wish the story had dived into more details or they could have, yeah, did give a little more into this here. It sounds like a lot of this has to do with personnel shortages rather than necessarily financial constraints, although that's definitely a part of it. And the story does note that the the national shipbuilding program's uh, budget overruns are starting to cause some problems for sure. It's the case that like we don't have a huge amount of capabilities we can particularly afford to cut very much. So it's going to be interesting to see what actually does get changed here. Does anything the CF needs to be investing more capabilities and yeah, maybe there are some stuff that can be put in or can be done by people not in uniform, but it is not the case that the military is in a particularly capability abundant state at the moment. So it's not great that they're looking at reducing that further, although the constraints are constraints, you have to deal with them. Let's come back to BC for a couple legal stories to close off the episode. First up, I think we talked about it way back when it first happened, but one of the first things the BC NDP did when they formed government in 2017 was launch a giant lawsuit at drug manufacturers to recoup costs for the overdose pandemic, for the overdose epidemic. Specifically, they targeted Purdue Pharma and others over the harms caused by the overprescription of opioids. That's been ongoing with a very complex legal battle, but now Purdue and the province have announced that they are going to come forward with a $150 million settlement that will cover all provinces and territories to pay for health-related, to pay for the recovery of healthcare-related costs based on the sale of those pain medications. So historic deal provided it's certified by the courts, and the province did target 40 drug manufacturers, so this is just Purdue Pharma, so I imagine there's still 39 lawsuits ongoing. But it's a pretty big win. Like, nationally, $150 million isn't a lot, but it is to a drug company, I have to imagine. It's not small, although didn't Purdue Pharma file for bankruptcy or so that they're, yeah, the fallout from everything around the opioid crisis, I believe, is basically putting Purdue Pharma out of business. But it's good that Wikipedia tells me their revenue in 2017 was over $3 billion, but in October 2020, 
they reached a settlement in the U.S. worth $8.3 billion U.S. I guess questions still exist about whether Canada got as good of a deal as we could have out of them. I think getting this money doesn't really bring anyone back and doesn't stop the ongoing crisis we've had. It's good. I have no problem squeezing drug companies like this, but keep doing more. And the other big settlement announced this past week is over the claims over Site C and the West Moberly First Nation. This is a partial settlement and an abeyance of ongoing litigation. So things could pick up again if either party gets super mad, mostly on the West Moberly First Nation side. But they have set out an impact and benefits agreement between BC Hydro and the First Nation. They have two agreements providing contracting opportunities to members of the First Nation. They have a tripartite land agreement between the province, BC Hydro, and the West Moberly. And there's an agreement providing for the release of the claims against Site C Project. Uh, this was reported on the government news feed where I get the press releases and it sound, sounded great, sounded like a nice, clean end to a long-standing issue for the BC NDP as the land claims against Site C were one of the like black scars against their claims to be as pro-reconciliation as they have been. And then West Moberly First Nation Chief Roland Wilson went and did a bunch of interviews, notably with the Narwhal, where he's the final nail in the coffin was a while ago. They had no intention of stopping. They forced us into this situation. It's not something to be proud of. They beat us into submission, basically. Not a great quote for the like, government. It's a deal. It sounds like you litigated them into the ground, which I guess the government still did a deal rather than forced it through all the way. So there is some victories for the West Moberly there. But man, you would hope that after settling, the other party would not come off as like, angry and bitter and like immediately turn around and start chewing you out publicly over it but there you go i guess now we still wait and see what the eventual settlement of the claims against the coastal gas link pipeline are with the wetsuatan hereditary chiefs or maybe that'll just be the ongoing struggle for whoever inherits the bcndp after John Horgan. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. Thank you.